Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen Today at Christ our King, we celebrate the confirmation of five young men and women, Mia and Charlotte and Luke, Carson and Owen, who are acknowledging and publicly pledging to remain steadfast in all the gifts of faith that God has given them through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And at any moment like this, at any moment like confirmation or any milestone in our lives, our minds do tend to drift towards, tend to think about the future, the future of this world and the future of our lives in this world. Now, of course, understandably, with the way things are in this world, there, there can be some concern about that today, some trepidation about what the future may hold, about the world into which we are journeying, which is why it is so important on a day like today that we that we be sure to listen and hear these words of our Savior, these assuring words that we hear today from our gospel reading, John chapter 14. These are the words that Jesus shared with his disciples at an important milestone in their lives. As Pastor Don mentioned to us, this was the time when the disciples were in that upper room on that Thursday night, the same night Jesus was betrayed. The night before Jesus was going to go to the cross to be crucified and die. And I'm sure that there was plenty of concern among the disciples, plenty of trepidation about what their future hold, about the world into which they were being called to live and to journey. So Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Aren't these words by Jesus just stunning and wonderful? These words were for the disciples, but these words are also for us, for you. Jesus is telling us, he is assuring us that there is a heavenly home, there is a resurrected life, and he says, where I am, there you will be. So this is the place that you are headed, a place prepared for you by Jesus so that you may be with him forever, a place where there are no more tears because they will be wiped away by him, a place where there is no more sorrow, no more sickness, a place where there are no more disasters, no more senseless violence, no more devil, no more demons, no more death, no more temptation, no more sin, no more trials. This is the place prepared by Jesus specifically for you. And this is the stunning and wonderful and beautiful promise that Jesus, our Savior, has made to each and every one of us. Now, this promise is sure. But a question about it that we might ask is, what does Jesus mean when he says, I go to prepare a place for you? When did that happen? I don't know what moment or event you usually think of when you hear Jesus say those words, but I know what I, for the longest time, always thought of was the ascension of Jesus. The time when Jesus went to prepare a place for me and for you was when he ascended into heaven after his death and his resurrection. That was when he went to go prepare a place, right? 
So I guess I don't know what this picture would have been in my mind if that was true. Like something like Jesus returning to heaven after he completed all his work here on earth and walking up to his father's mansion and he looks around and he says, you know, Father and Holy Spirit, there are a lot more people down there than we thought. We need to make some more room. And so Jesus puts on his contractor helmet and he starts by renovating the heavenly mansion, knocking out walls and adding more rooms. Something like that, I guess. Now, as humorous as a picture as that is to think about, I don't think that's what Jesus meant. After all, having enough space in heaven isn't the problem in heaven. It isn't the problem that Jesus came to address. There's plenty of space in heaven for you, for me, for the whole world who believes in Jesus. No, the problem in heaven is sin. The problem is your sin and my sin. The reason why there's no place for us and should be no place for us is because we are sinners. Because we have broken God's law. Because we've lived as enemies of God. Because we've worshipped ourselves or we've collected all of these different idols in life that we worship. Things that we fear and love and trust in more than God. We don't deserve to be in that heavenly home because that place is only for the holy ones. Those rooms are only for the perfect, the place before God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son and the Holy Spirit belongs only to the righteous. And so you and I, according to our lives, according to our works, according to our flesh, we are not righteous. We are sinners, every one of us. And so we do not belong in heaven. And that's the problem. That's why there's no place for us in heaven. But when Jesus says to his disciples, when he says to you and to me, I go to prepare a place for you, he's saying, I'm going to take care of your sin. I'm going to take care of your uncleanness. I'm going to take care of your unholiness. I'm going to win for you a righteousness and a perfection that you cannot accomplish on your own. So when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's saying, I'm going to the cross to die for you. That's how Jesus prepares a place. That's how he carves out room for us in his father's presence. That's how he makes us fit to stand before him in eternity. When Jesus went to the cross, Jesus took all of our sin, all of our uncleanness, all of our imperfections. He took all of that and he suffered in our place so that he could forgive our sins, so that he could declare us righteous, so that he could make us holy ones. We are holy ones. We are saints who are fit to stand before God. There is a place for you in heaven. And it's not because you've earned that spot or you won your place. It's not like God had tryouts, like football tryouts, and you ran faster and were better than everyone else. And so you made the team. No, there's a place for you in heaven because Jesus died and rose again for you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. We do know the way to eternal life. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. The way to the Father is through him. 
And so we remember in our lives, our lives, we are called to follow Jesus. We remember that Jesus' way went through the cross. It didn't avoid the death. Jesus went through suffering and even death. He died so that we might live. And, and so that we now live and the life that we now lead, we realize it is a life that is marked by the cross. Jesus calls us to pick up our own crosses and follow him, which means that we do not avoid the difficult parts of our life that may be marked by suffering. But instead, we gladly walk it, responding to God's great love for us by love. We respond with love, love for God and love for our neighbor. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the way of the cross. Of course, living that way is easier said than done. So I think especially about our young confirmands and all of our young people. How do we present to them a life that is marked with suffering for one's faith, suffering for one's neighbor, for the sake of our neighbor? How do we present that as an appealing way to live? Doesn't this world with all of its comforts and visions of success present a much more appealing, much more fulfilling lifestyle to pursue? Doesn't it seem far better to spend my time pursuing my own comfort, my own life, my own happiness? Who in their right mind would willingly choose the way that Jesus calls us to live, the way of the cross? Well, to be honest, no one would. None of us on our own would ever choose this kind of living. All of us can so easily slip into a lifestyle where we know that following Jesus is the most important thing. But by our thoughts, words, and actions, we instead make ourselves and our lives and our comfort, anything other than Jesus, the most important thing. And all of us fall short. We can't do it on our own. We need Jesus. And that's another reason why we need to hear Jesus tell us about the place that he has prepared for us. Because one, he has done it, not us. He is the one who needs to prepare it because we can't. We fall short. We sin. And two, because once we know that he has prepared our eternal place with him, not of ourselves, but because of what he has done for us, we now have the strength to see this world and to see the sacrificial lives that we are called to lead in this world, that it is worth it, despite whatever difficulties we may face, that when we see how beautiful and pure and otherworldly and godly this life is that Jesus has prepared for us, we realize that anything this sinful world has to offer us only pales in comparison. But what does this way of the cross, what does living in light of the cross look like? Well, we heard an example of it today from the book of Acts. We heard about Stephen, the first Christian martyr, the first Christian to die for his faith. Stephen was chosen as one of the, the seven in the early church to help, with, help the apostles with the daily bread distribution. Now, this isn't a, a glamour, this wasn't a glamorous position for Stephen to hold. I think if any of our young people told their parents, went up to their mom or dad, said, Mom, Dad, I think when I grow up, I know what I want to be. I'd like to be a, a bread distributor in my life. I think there would probably be a conversation that your parents would have with you. But the point is, in the eyes of the world, Stephen wasn't anything special. He wasn't glamorous. 
But in the eyes of God, Stephen was living in such a way that was faithful to Jesus and faithful to his fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. He was walking the way of the cross. Of course, God had an important plan for his life, a plan that not even Stephen could have seen coming. His life, a life that testified to the love of Jesus, well, it couldn't help but draw the attention of people, people in the church, but it also drew the attention of his enemies. And so Stephen was seized and dragged before the council in Jerusalem. But Stephen spoke. Stephen spoke about his faith. We didn't hear, actually, all of the the, the, the rather lengthy speech that Stephen gives in in Acts chapter 7. I encourage you later today or this week to, to look up Acts 7 and see all that Stephen said. But he was testifying to his faith in Jesus. Uh, Stephen gives a confession of his faith to a crowd that is hostile to him. And so in the midst of this great difficulty that, that Stephen found himself in, despite any concern that he most likely had for that moment, any trepidation about what his future held, about the world into which he was being called to journey, Stephen stood boldly and confessed his faith in Jesus. And it ended up costing him his life. But even in death, Stephen pointed, to, pointed people to what life is all about. It's about Jesus, the one who lived and died and rose again for us. And we should ask, what enabled Stephen to be able to do that? What gave him the strength to accomplish that? What, what was it that, that he could speak so boldly about his faith like that? Was he some kind of super-Christian? Did he have some kind of faith that we could only aspire to, hope to aspire to? I'll tell you, the answer is no. Stephen was not special in the eyes of the world. He was a quote-unquote normal Christian, but he had been given a special promise from his Lord, a promise that we also have been given. Did you catch what he saw right before he died? We know what it was because he told the crowd what he saw. He gazed into heaven. And saw the glory of God and Jesus sitting, standing rather, at the right hand of God. In other words, Stephen was able to see the place prepared for him. And knowing that, it gave Stephen the strength to be able to walk the way of the cross that God was calling him to walk. To give his life in service to God and in service to others. To love and even forgive his enemies. Lord, do not hold this sin against them, Stephen prayed, as they were stoning him. An ordinary Christian, but an extraordinary promise. There are a couple of significant questions that I'll be asking you confirmands today, and they kind of all essentially go like this. Do you intend to continue steadfast in your faith that God has given you, and to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from it. This past Wednesday at our last confirmation class, we talked about that. We talked about that and and we talked about how we as Christians know that death is not the worst thing that can happen to us in this world. Losing our faith would be. Now that sounds kind of crazy to anyone who's not a Christian, 
Because our entire world and society, every hospital, every health fad, every diet, every gym, every medicine, every procedure, every lifestyle, every creature comfort that is meant to distract us from the inevitability of death, everything in this world, it seems, can be aimed at, at, at either preventing or forestalling death. But in the end, no matter how hard we strive against it, death is inevitable for all of us. And, and so for this world, death seems like the worst thing that could happen in this life. And it causes us great fear. But not so for a Christian. We have no need to fear death because even death has been transformed by Jesus. For a Christian, death is simply the beginning of our eternal life with him. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't value and protect and take care of God's gift of life in, in this world. We absolutely do. But it also means that we are not afraid when the time of our death comes. And the reason for that is because we know the way and the truth and the life. We know Jesus and we know that he has prepared a place for us. We know that by his death, he has destroyed the power of death. And by his life, he has given us everlasting life, both now and for eternity. And so that means that we can use our time in this world, our lives in this world, gladly following him. Life with Jesus brings us incredible joy. But I want you to hear this as well. Life with Jesus also brings us incredible difficulty. In your statements of faith that all of you have shared with us over the past three weeks, all of you shared some difficult moments that you have faced or are planning to face in your young lives. And, and I won't lie to you, those difficult moments will continue in your life. But each of you also in your statements have rightly recognized that Jesus was there for you and will continue to be there for you each and every moment of your life. And this is what it means then to follow Jesus in the way of the cross. Jesus has, has called you to follow him in a life of sacrifice and service. And at times it may even be a life of suffering, like it was for Stephen. But through it all, Jesus will be with you. And he will give you everything that you need. He will guide you through this life to your eternal life. He is the way and the truth and the life. And so no matter what life in this world may bring, we know that Jesus has already prepared a place for us. He's done it by his cross and by his resurrection. And so you have been given the same joyful vision that Stephen was given. The sure and certain promise of the glory that awaits us in our resurrected life. That Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father for you. And as he says, where Jesus is, where he is, there you will be also in his Father's mansion, and in life eternal. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. In Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen.